Welcome into Natchez Glen House Stories. After a long winter hiatus, kids, I have decided it's time to uh, start up with new episodes of the podcast. I always like to take these little moments to reflect on what we've talked about in some previous episodes. And one of the things that came up, if you're paying attention, of course you should be, in a couple of episodes was when we had breeders and growers on talking about how some of the influence of what their work is is literally breeding plants that would fit in the rack heights being delivered to big box stores. And unfortunately, I think this is an all too often trend. And one of the first people that jumped on my radar to have a conversation about his new book, which is, I think, going to be fantastic to hopefully give people a different perspective on some of this, is Kelly Norris. When I reached out to you, Kelly, I think the thing I said to you was, I want to have a conversation about these green meatball type plants that we're talking <laughs> right. about. Right. And when you, when you start working on the book, let, let's use that as a bit of a framework here. Yeah. Is that in your, your brain somewhere that you're aware you're clearly a plants person, you're, you're in this world knee deep, and you're aware of that is going on. But what I also find ironic is at that same time, we have new wave perennials, people like Pete Aldoff, people like yourself. So it's almost like we do have this weird duality going on at the moment where there's an industry producing green meatballs, but then there's people like mm-hmm. yourself saying, hey, there's other ways we can do this. Was that in your thought right. process at all? Oh, totally. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm trained as a plant breeder. I've, I've, uh, my graduate work is a combination of plant genetics and breeding and, or was, I should say, cause it's been 10 years ago now, but, but was plant breeding and genetics and, and ecology, ecophysiology specifically about how plants respond to the environment. So absolutely. I have, I share much of the same sentiments you do about this idea that we have an industry that's still in a very agricultural way producing plants for landscapes that tend to fit a more, you know, commodity-based mindset. You know, they, do they fit on a rack? Are they are they going to be in bloom for three months of the season so people will want them? I mean, they're, they're the, kind of these very artificial sort of characteristics that drive market development and new product development. And yet, we're constantly aware of this tension, as you illustrate, between wanting to find a way to increase plant diversity and thus faunal diversity in the landscape and to, to find a more resilient ecological way. And those seem to be at, at face value somewhat at odds, uh, that they would require a different palette or a different approach to the palette. So I, that was absolutely something I, I, I carry with me a lot, but I think it was, you know, um, in my thinking as I'm working on this book. When, when we look at it, what's your, just you know, your opinion on this? What dictated some of this? Do you think it was just the agricultural, as you mentioned, the background of the nursery industry is, you know, at the very least cousins to the world of ag, that it's an efficiency yeah. issue. It's a yield issue. It's the best crop kind of issue yeah. versus the best plant. What do you think was that initial motivator? Was the market giving yeah. what it could do best or was the consumer wanting that i think it's a i think it's sort of all of the above in, in a way and i think it's come in and out of focus over the last 120 years in 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 i'm speaking about american horticultural history specifically because 
if you go back and you look in the literature, gardening magazines and even gardening books at the turn of the 19th into the 20th century, particularly here in the Midwest, you would find actually lists of plants that bear a striking resemblance to the lists of plants we're promoting today. The list would have been dominated by natives because there was an awareness out here, particularly on the Great Plains, where people had, you know, over the course of relatively recent history then, maybe 30 or 40 years, come into what was a fairly difficult climate, a hot summers, cold winters, one degree today in Des Moines, Iowa. (laughs) So, you know, these extremes of the mid-continental climate came with an awareness that, wow, we need to really create land. If we're going to have a landscape and it's going to be it's going to have to get on with itself. We got to have stuff here. It's going to be tough and it's going to be adapted. And so there really actually was at that point in time, uh, an awareness that these plants of the prairie, which by the way, were being pushed back to create room for fields. I mean, you know, we, we were sort of, you know, we were aware of their value, but we were pushing them back as we, as we did, did so. So I think at some point the, the modernization of the industry happened in the wake of world war II, And you know, logistics as we know it today, our ability, you know, your and your and my's ability to get nursery stock from, frankly, wherever we want to today was was really only made possible by the Eisenhower inter- interstate system. And so as the industry became modernized logistically, remember too, it wasn't until the 1920s and 30s and, and even really, again, post-World War II that most of the industry in the country was containerized container grown nursery stock was really a relatively recent phenomenon. It was largely bare root or it was shipped, you know, in wrapping with people, you know, that would wrap it in in newspaper or or other sorts of organic products. It was actually a pretty major conception to start growing plants in, in cans, literally as they, because it was aluminum cans they were growing in at the time. And then this transition into sort of clay and terracotta and then plastic ultimately, you know. So I think along the way, as these various innovations came to inform how plants got from the source that they were produced at to people's gardens, sort of came with some contingencies and and the ability to be able to move plants easily. And that's where that whole rack thing comes in. And it's still decades later imprinted on the way we think about how to move plants from A to B. You're in mail order. I grew up in mail order. And I I think mail order is in, in a lot of ways the the democratizer of a lot of these things because we actually don't care what it looks like in a pot because it's going to get wrapped up and put in a box anyway. Yes. So, you know, and I think we've trained, by the way, the, the last piece of your question was market, uh, the consumer. Mm-hmm. Are consumers asking for this? I don't think consumers are asking for green meatballs, but they've come to expect it. And because there are so few alternative choices at the majority of garden centers, their dollars sort of speak a false proxy. And I think you know, I rail against petunias. There's not a single person, I think, in the world that wakes up craving petunias. Maybe that's an overstatement, but I, I don't think there's a majority of people in the world, gardeners, that is, who wake up craving petunias. It's what's out there. It's a choice that, it, you know, it's like when it's petunia A, B, or C, are you going to be surprised if they choose a petunia at the end of the day? So, I mean, I'm picking on petunias, but, but I, I pick on boxwoods all the time, Kelly. So don't well, feel sure. bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, enough with the green meatballs. <laughs> yes, well, and, and I think when when people you know hear me talk about this subject, and I'm sure you you've had this moment too. You know, you get the people who who love something like that, right? Because I think in many ways, Literally. yeah, they've grown up with it. it there's almost a, a sentimental attachment, I think, to some of these sure. approaches to Absolutely. gardening, there's family lineage, there's a certain look. Um, when 
and I've heard and seen some of your excerpts from your your book, the new naturalism. Is part of the goal here for you to to just there's another way to look at it? I mean, I almost feel like when I communicate to people about gardening, so much of it is saying, let's approach this with a little bit of a clean slate. If we can, for a moment, let's just approach it as a learner who says, okay, I'm open to new ideas. Is that part yeah. of it too? Just there's a, we, we can totally. do this just a tad different. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm always asking people to suspend disbelief. If you, you know, you jump onto my Instagram or Facebook and you see my own garden, it's amazing the comments people make about it sometimes because people feel very liberated by the way in which I garden because I, I, I garden unabashedly on the wild side of things. And people look at it and, and, and think, oh my gosh, you know, I, I, it, it, there's a romantic and an emotional reaction to it. But then there's always like a prequal. There's like a like a qualification, a nuance. Oh, I you know my husband would never go for that, or my neighbors would would really probably hate. That. I mean, there's there's suddenly all of these kinds of cultural norms that are put in place. So I think part of what drives the green meatball effect is that actually at the end of the day, our minds sometimes struggle to deal with complexity, and so we have a need. And this has been shown in research, and, and probably most famously, uh, landscape architect at University of Michigan named Joan Nassauer in the mid 90s, you know, sort of postulated this idea of messy ecosystems and orderly frames that we as humans can perceive wildness. We start to understand it and th thus it becomes legible and coherent when we have something we can hang our hat on a straight line, a 90 degree angle, a circular object. And part of that's just our psychology, part of that's just needing to have some tidy sense of control about how we how we organize our surroundings. And there's there's some psychological literature out there that talks about the evolution of humanity and this sort of transition from being kind of grassland foragers to agricultural civilizations and how the artifacts of this in terms of our evolution of how we interact with the landscape today as gardeners predominantly uh, or, or in agriculture in some form, almost 50% of the planet being utilized for those purposes. We, we have sort of in, you know brought along the way this need to, to sort of frame things up a little bit. So I, and I acknowledge that in the book. I, I don't think that's something, that's not an either or proposition with what we're talking about. It's and and both, right? We can create ecologically resilient gardens that still look legible, that are coherent, that we can understand and visually process. And that's not a bad thing. It's just not necessarily green boxwood either. I, I, you just used the phrase that I mentioned to you before we started recording. That a mutual friend, Brent Horvath, shout out at Intrinsic Perennials, you did a talk for an event that he had and yeah. use that same phrase, this or that. And one of the things that has concerned me over the last 10 years or so is we had a, I'll say group of people that were very vocal about natives and ecology. And that was Everything they were saying, I completely agreed with a thousand percent. Yeah. But then it felt like there was a bit of a rigid moment that developed where like what you're saying, it was either we have this or that, and this yeah. is all. Yeah. We couldn't have a balance of both. We couldn't just encourage people to garden. Let's start there. Let's start with right. removing right. some lawn and start gardening. 
And I think you're right. It, it is this sort of perception of, well, this is the only way we do it. We just, we, we, we get a bunch of native plants, we throw them out there and we just, it's, it's, that's it. That's what we're doing. We're right. not intervening. Right. Where I think what, what you brought up in that talk is, you know, we have another choice, right? It's not that we just have this or that to choose from. Well, it's, it's invariably more complicated than that. And, and again, humans like, we like boxes, we like categories, we like black and white, gray, we're a little uncomfortable with. And then when we get into living color, we get our minds sort of get blown. And this just goes back to what we were talking. It's the same theme of our psychology a little bit. And I don't like to get all necessarily philosophical on people. We're having to talk about gardening, but, it, but in some ways it helps to position well, this. I, and I completely I would agree, say- Kelly. I, I completely agree. <laughs> gardening is essentially just philosophy wrapped up in plants. I mean, that's all it's, it is. It's, you know, I'm, I am my most active when I am on two knees weeding in the garden. My mind is alive. And the, the title of the book, New Naturalism, is actually a subtle reference to philosophy. There, there, naturalism is essentially a, a vein of philosophy that, that talks of, is related to, to science, is empirical knowledge, testing things and evaluating results, observing things and learning from our surroundings. These are things we as gardeners do every day in the garden. We, we pay attention, we observe, we see things, we, we put connections together, we, we, we detect patterns. And so one of the things I just, I, I hope as a result of the book is that people find a way to just tune into those observations a little bit more. And when they do that, I think it starts to sort of break down this, this or that black or white binary kind of way to see the world. I am a boy of the prairie. Uh, there, there is, you know, my, my life as a horticulturist has been informed by a fascination with plants in principally two conditions, in the wild, in, in natural places that are subject more to ecological systems and processes than humans, and plants in gardens where we're tending them and cultivating them and we're watching them and we've collected them and we've all this. So I, I've always been fascinated by these things in two conditions. And it wasn't until I was in college that I started to really see them less as two separate conditions and more as sort of the sort of coexistence that actually plants were living in gardens in much the same way they might be living in the wild. We just weren't associating them with other plants in the same way. And this gets to a point you just, I think, uh, alluded to a little bit is we've had a great conversation over the last 30 or 40 years in American horticulture and really around the world around planting with plants that are native to our regions and our, our native biogeography. What we've forgotten though, along the way, is to change the conversation to really look at how to use those plants as opposed to just swapping out the peony for something else, right? And I, I, nothing against peonies, but I mean, if you're going to make a, a, an argument for most American gardens, uh, non-native versus a native, the, the, the native conversation went, well, you just, you just take out the non-native and put in a native plant and suddenly you, you like level up and get more points. And that doesn't really, I mean, yes, that, that takes a, a half step forward. But if we don't relate that plant to place and to context where we garden, which is messy, by the way, because it's an, an urban world and our, ur- our urbanized lifestyles have changed fundamentally a lot of landscape ecology. And so we have to think about that differently. Climate change, by the way, is changing all this, too, because our, our, our climates in, in, mo- across most of the northern hemisphere are going to resemble climates five to 10 degrees in latitude farther south uh, today uh, 
60 to 80 years from now. So in another way to say that, Des Moines, Iowa in 2080 is going to look more like Enid, Oklahoma does today, you know, and, and so, et cetera. And there's, there's certainly a lot of models out there. People can go kind of plug their zip code in and find out what some of these, these stresses are going to be. So we have to see all of this as this kind of dynamic system. We're not just digging holes and planting things because they're pretty. We're, we're perforating the crust of the earth with a, a decision that can enhance and foster life. And that by itself is not a conversation about natives or non-natives. In fact, there's, there's, if in philosophy, there is a fallacy called the, the, the nature, essentially the nature is good philosophy. And one of these, one of these, these, or the, this fallacy is essentially that, well, if it, if it is in nature, it must be good. And the reason it's a fallacy is because that that is it's not even it's not it's an illogical argument. It lacks any bearing of context. It it lacks any real inquisitive question. It's not that that just simply because there's an example in nature, it isn't good, but it it it, it exists in a in a context. None of these things happen in a vacuum. And our gardens, by the way, are not in a vacuum. Your garden and the green space. I don't know if you live in the country, or I presume you live on, on a, in a more rural area, or you know, outside of a city somewhere. You know, the the green threads of our parks, our gardens, our botanic gardens, our what have you, all sew themselves together and stitch by stitch to create this ecological quilt. That's a it's patchy, it's a fragmented quilt. But each of those little green threads, your garden next to your neighbor's, next to mine, next to the park, whoever, become part of these little threads that hold the world together. Our job as gardeners is just to stitch more, <laughs> put more patches in the quilt. No, I, I totally agree with that. And it's one of the things, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but they did an audit, an ecological audit at Great Dixter in the UK. Yes, yes. And I thought that was a, a really, I, I come at it from this place, Kelly. It's just great if we get to see, to see people garden more in an involved way. And yep. I think that, audit, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, what it showed, it was over two years where they did an ecological observation at Great Dixter of insect life, lichen, moss. And what they saw was the there were actually some insect species that hadn't been seen in that region of the UK in over 20 years. And Dixter, their stewardship practices are very solid. But the the garden's intent, clearly, has never been to be a native garden. There is a meadow, and they do practice sure. incredible stewardship of that. But I think it pointed, in many ways, Kelly, to sort of what we're saying, that there's both. <laughs> it's not this or that. We have great stewardship practices with some native plants that are fantastic and blend beautifully. And if we take that role as a gardener is active, I think we can accomplish with both of these two factions, because someone brought this up actually on a live that I did today, the faction of the ecologist versus the horticulturalist, as if we were in some kind of you know combative war on the subject. Right. Kelly, and, and I right. feel like there's a happy medium there to be met. Well, I'm so glad you brought this up because I, I, I'm, I'm shameless to say that Fergus Garrett, the head gardener at Great Dixter, was one of the uh, the, the endorsers on the back of the book. And, and you know, I, I won't read the whole thing, but, but you know, he said, you know, the book unveils an understanding of how to encourage biodiversity in our gardens, bringing us closer to a world 
where gardeners, ecologists, landscape designers, planners unite to blur the lines between ecology and horticulture. And, and, and if folks listening out there haven't looked at that study, it is on their website. It's a great example and underscores some emergent themes in ecological research that habitat complexity, uh, what, what you'll see ecologists refer to as spatial heterogeneity, essentially just how complex a space is biologically, uh, thus and thus some measure of its diversity, is actually kind of the fundamental you know, motor, the engine behind how all trophic levels, the lichens, the plants, to insects, to birds, to mammals, the reptiles, whatever, interact with space. In fact, we know there, there's a lot of research in, in ornithology and in, in bird nesting habits that show, in fact, there is often, for songbirds, there are some, some species of songbirds that have very specific habitat preferences. A lot of them are quite general. In fact, they will nest in non-native trees and shrubs because when they're surveying for habitat to, to reproduce in and to complete their reproductive biology, they're, they're looking sort of at the big picture, spatially speaking, looking for food, looking for water, cover from predators. It's, it's a sort of you know, mixed bag of this kind of complex sort of system. And so I, I appreciate your sentiment in saying if we simply would just encourage people to garden in a denser, richer, more diverse way, without necessarily wagging the finger at every single planting choice we make, the sum force of that would have most likely, from what we're learning, a far greater impact than, than schooling every single person on, on essentially every single planting choice they're going to make. I, I, I just said like four minutes ago, I'm a boy of the prairie. Like there's nobody that's going to stand in line in terms of my passion for flora that's native to this continent. I, I've spent a month of my year wild collecting plants, studying plants in the wilds, collecting seed to evaluate. And, and, and my passion is diversity and landscape. But your peony out your back doorstep is not ruining the planet. It's just, it, it, there is just nothing that's that concrete and that cut and dry about it. Oh, and what you you just touched on, I mean, I think the the thing we we should all and what Fergus's quote on there, which is a, a ringing endorsement, obviously, is the real scourge for all of us should be the amount of just mulch and bark between plants, totally. and we have six feet distance between things, and totally. we're not creating any kind of garden ecology. We're creating. I, right. I always use this joke, Kelly is plants were social distancing before any of us in the American <laughs> landscape. It was, let's take right. out a ruler and you go 36 inches from you and you go yeah. 48 inches from yeah. you because the dreaded hang right. tag told me so. And yeah. to change that, to, to create some kind of paradigm shift here, I think all of this is what's necessary. I, I think it's a, an all hands on deck kind of approach because we are turning back the the knowledge base that people have had for the better part of the last century and for many of them especially here in the states on what a garden is even i think yeah. that is, is something for many people just what's a garden um yeah i think what most people and no offense kids you guys know sometimes you know i say these things don't get upset don't send the hate mail it's okay that what many people they might perceive as a garden 
I would say are socially distanced plants. That, that to me, (laughs) I I don't think we invoke the same definition sometimes, even of what a garden is. I, I could not agree more. And I think that's one of the major paradigmatic shifts that's afoot and that we're still, it's still quite nascent because, you know, I, a lot of the work that I do in private practice is probably split 50, 50 between what people would recognize as traditional horticultural planting design. And another 50% that's actually to most people looks probably like restoration, ecological restoration, but that's done with a horticultural mindset. So we can create spaces that, you know, end up being a lot more, a lot richer and more evocative, maybe than just a standard sort of, in in the case of the Midwest, a prairie restoration done from seed. And so I I sort of, I some days wonder, I often ask myself, am I gardening the wild or am I trying to, you know, uh, make gardens wilder? I I, I think it's both. Again, I'm not an either or kind of guy. I'm an and in both sort of character. And so I, uh, I'm always looking for ways to just expand the conversation around what we think of as gardens, how we interact with them. And just, just to, just to tie this off to the, the thread we were on there for a minute, uh, you know, your planting choices, wherever you're at out there matter and they, they could not matter more. Uh, but you need to remember that the, the most egregious, uh, offenses to ecological integrity in this world are concrete and asphalt and impermeable surfaces and petroleum-based inputs that, I mean, these are far more consequential to the ecological damage that we, or the, I should say disturbance that we're doing to the planet, than whether you choose to plant a a peony or or something else. I I mean, I'm, I'm not, in a way, trying to talk out of both sides of my mouth. I'm just trying to open up the visors a little bit so that we can see the situation in the context for what it what it is. And I've always been like that as a scientist. It got me in trouble in graduate school because I found very quickly being in graduate seminars with a lot of ecologists that you know, ecology has a lot of conservation overtones. You look, especially in, in, in America and, and really throughout the Western world in general, but I'll cite two American philosophers that had, I think, an outsized influence on ecology, Henry David Thoreau and John Muir. You know, Muir's philosophy was not even conservation, it was preservation. It was lock the thing up and get out and, and leave it, leave it to, to be, which we understand isn't real either, because especially for a species as broadly distributed as humans, our, our effects touch every square inch of this planet, whether we're there or not. And so, you know, the world is this sort of big living experiment. And here we are out there scratching along, deciding, you know, whether it's peonies, petunias. I've got to come up with like a native pea, penstemon. Say peonies, petunias, or penstemon, you know, out there in our, in our gardens. And, and it can seem quite futile at the end of the day. It can seem like we're, we're dithering while, while Rome burns. But in fact, I, I see it quite the opposite. I, I see so much hope. And I'll tell you why. Because of the 50% of the planet that's currently in agriculture, you add on top of that a couple, maybe 10, 15 more percent of other human types of activities, and then about 5% on top of that for the world's surface that is occupied by cities. And that, that's cities proper. That doesn't necessarily account for suburbia or 
uh, rural situations. There's a few more percent on top of that. That, you know, we end up with a, a pretty small chunk of the planet that's actually left in, in what, what ecologists would like to say is a true wild space. I go back to that 5% that are in cities and even the 50% that's in agriculture and would ask people to realize that most of that land is controlled by private individuals, not owned by governments, it's not owned by cities. It's in the hands of people who can make individual decisions. And if there's 500 or 1,000 or 10,000 people listening to this thing, I don't know. But if every single one of us went out and simply chose to make 50% of our planning decisions different in a, in a way that simply asked, why does this, and I'm going to read something here in a minute, why does this plant belong here? Why should I plant this here now? Just imagine the impact that would have, given the power that private ownership has over, over land on, on this world. It's, I, I see nothing but hope for, for the future. I, I write in the planting palettes, which is half of the, the last half of the book, you know, there's, it's a big narrative, right? And, and the, the book, obviously, when you're trying to write for a global audience, you know, you have to make some generalizations. But I encourage people to apply these insights locally and ask yourself, why should I grow this here? And what will it do? Because it's the active doing of plants living, exchanging genes with each other, producing seed, being food for something else. It's the activity that makes a garden richer, ecologically speaking. Totally agree. And, and I, it, it, there's a, the word active, I, I think is also something that is thankfully, I think, changing. Mm-hmm. We definitely went through this moment of, from a, a, the commercial side of the industry, dominating the conversation with phrases like low maintenance. Yeah. And, and low maintenance sort of also implied that you put the plant out there, it just does whatever. There's no mm-hmm. intervening on your part. There's no active, there's no, there's, mm-hmm. there's no nothing just does what it does. I think it created unrealistic expectations for plants. And maybe the most harmful thing is it created unrealistic lack of expectations as us, as gardeners of what we do, that that we do play a role in some of these choices. And you've mentioned a couple of times the influence of growing up in the region that you do. You mentioned Penstemon, Kelly. So do you do you also think because I, I feel there is a, a group of people that are we've had previous guests like this uh, crime pays botany doesn't would be a great example of this is someone who's been <laughs> of a different style of person Kelly oh but, yeah but yeah, clearly yeah. has developed it. a a good size following through yeah. YouTube and and social media and seeing a plant in its native range in its native habitat. But then also being able to say, well, you know, Penstemon, we'll pick on that, we'll stay in the peas, that there's also not only species Penstemon to choose from, there's cultivated varieties of Penstemon, obviously, they're beautiful garden plants as well. It's almost like the, um, for lack of a, and maybe a trivial term here, Kelly, but it's almost a souvenir in some ways that if we could get people into the bigger picture of understanding where these plants come from, those plant choices that you can create in incredible experience as long as you're willing to be actively involved in some of that. Yeah, totally. I, I, I eschew the use of the word maintenance 
in a horticultural context. Maintenance implies stasis. None of us should think about doing any kind of landscape maintenance because nothing should be static in our garden. Trimming the boxwoods into green meatballs, that's maintenance because that's a static activity. Gardens should be managed because management is an active process. And I always, I liken this, you know, for eight years, I was a director of horticulture and education at the Greater Des Moines Botanical Garden. And I also had oversight of our facility, our physical plant in the course of my tenure there. And I often would liken my role to being like this. I, I maintained a building because in a, in a, as a building owner, as a homeowner, your job is to mitigate depreciation. Your job is to maintain the integrity of the structure as long as it is possible to whatever input is sustainable, because again, lots of things are sustainable with the right amount of resources, which is why I don't like that word. I'll come to the alternative in a minute. But maintenance is, is what we're trying to do when something is, and we're trying to mitigate depreciation. Landscapes should be exactly the opposite. Landscapes should appreciate in value. They should be forever in momentum. I mean, they're, they're in, in, in motion, forward momentum. They should appreciate with value. They should be managed for life. It's an active process. And, and, and just that semantic difference, I don't like to necessarily pick on, on, on semantic things like that, but it is imp it's an important argument. I make it often because I think it, it draws a very clear distinction in between the kinds of horticultural activity we have so often been engaged in for the last 250 years in the Western world and the kind of horticulture that I think a number of us are trying to sort of shift people towards something that is, as you say, engaged. Who would, I understand at some point that there is a finite amount of time and resources any of us has to do whatever it is we want to do. And in fact, that the, the irony about this is, is that when you take a management-based approach, your inputs of time and treasure and sweat and blood and tears and whatever become more meaningful and intentional because the result is continuing to appreciate with value. It is in motion. It's in route to something as opposed to this two-dimensional static painting. I hate that analogy. Well, hate's a strong word, but I, I dislike strongly the, the illusion, the, the references to gardening and painting. I, I'm a painter. Paints, painting is great, but it's a two-dimensional construct. The garden doesn't exist in 2D. It exists in 3D. It's alive. It's changing. It's dynamic. The change, the dynamic, this the changing over time, that's the art. Like that's that's what we're doing it for. So I think you're totally right. I think this, this whole low maintenance philosophy, you know, sort of blurs the argument a little bit. People want to be mindful of their investments in their landscape, but we don't want to extricate people from them. That's not what we're after. No. And do you feel that as you grew up in the region you did, did you have a moment where you mentioned earlier that you had this epiphany, this, mo this realization that these plants you were seeing in native habitat, the plants that you were in the nursery world with in containers, that there wasn't this dividing line necessarily between those two, how, how soon did you come to that? And then was that an idea that while at the botanical garden, you got to execute to see that line blur a little bit more? Did you do it personally first? What was your experimentation? Yeah. You, Cause we all come, I well, hopefully Kelly, some of us come to that this moment where we go, okay, I'm starting yeah. to see it differently. 
but then that opportunity to execute it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, you know, I, I've been gardening since I was you know, a little kid. I, I and I, I started my first chapter of my professional life was talking my parents into buying a mail order iris nursery when I was fifteen, in which we ran for for fifteen years. And so I, I and I all the while gardening, all the while collecting plants and playing with plants and experimenting with plants. But it probably wasn't until I was in college, uh, actually right around my freshman year, that a book came out called on the wild side experiments in new naturalism by Keith Wiley. There's that reference to new naturalism again. Uh, and Keith Wiley was at the time, the head gardener at a, a place called the garden house in the UK and had spent a number of years uh, studying wild habitats uh, all around the world and plants and wild habitats and kind of mirroring his garden design, planting design, based on just the patterns he was observing as plants responded to environment. And that really spoke to me in a very powerful way because I could walk into a prairie and find as much beauty and enjoyment and pleasure as I could in walking into a you know, well-cultivated garden. And so it was at that point I started to sort of go, okay, there's a different way in which we can think about not only how we garden, but maybe maybe why we're gardening. And so my interest in plants and plantsmanship and plant breeding became this pursuit of wanting to simply expand the palate. You know, when I started at the botanical garden, I saw an opportunity to really put some of these ideas and experiments that had previously been in my personal over into a public light. And I I think the success we had over eight years in essentially creating a new botanic garden from scratch in a relatively mid-sized city as Des Moines, Iowa, bears out the truth that when you when you bring plants together in a horticulturally different way, you can really positively affect the relationships that people have with landscapes. You can affect the, the emotional romantic response that people have to it. And we have to remember that that whole stylistic, emotional romantic stuff is part of just our language and are the, the sort of the lexicon for how humans interact with our world. Now, my first, you know, the book, well, my first book, but the book prior to this was called Plants with Style. And it's a palette-driven book with essentially this sort of ecological undertone, but it really is trying to position plants and the way we think about plants in a way that's a little more style forward. Because I believe that the more we can relate as humans, this is a very humanist side of the brain for a moment. The more that we can relate as humans to the world around us, aesthetically otherwise, the more we're going to be interested in, in, in giving a damn about it and, and caring about it and paying attention to it. Because it's at that juncture, when we cross that threshold, that the conversation can then get a little deeper. And that's where new naturalism stri sort of strives to go. You know, in 200 and whatever pages it is, there's plenty of stuff I didn't say. And, and, and you know, I'm always, when I'm finished with a book, I always think, gosh, you know, did I say all I needed to say? And the answer, of course, is never no. Or is, there's always no. There's always more to say. But we have to move in a direction that, that starts to create a greater awareness and a greater understanding about our role in the world, how we interact with plants and landscape. And so that, that's this journey I'm on. It's just it's sort of picking away at this you know, how we come to live a more ecologically driven culture of horticulture, how we come to live with the garden and in the garden. How was the response? Because this is something that we, we have delicately, Kelly, over 
the podcast tenure, uh, tackled this subject of public gardens yeah. and their role to influence perception. I think one of the things that I lament sometimes is we do have a good amount of public gardens in this country, but I don't yeah. know how many of them really reflect some of the things we're talking about. There are many of them yep. that, you know, they, they have to, they have a staff, they have overheads, they become a little bit more event centric than they yep. do anything else. What was that experience like? I mean, did you find yourself having question. to balance between those two worlds of, you know, we want to expose people to these new ideas from an, uh, both a horticultural and an ecological standpoint, but also we got to keep the lights on too? Yes, all of that. And I would say if you look at the numbers, you know, the the institution I left in November obviously is is extremely stressed by the pandemic, as many cultural institutions, gardens, museums, et cetera, are. I think if you look at the eight years prior to the pandemic and you look at our year over year growth in virtually every metric that you could measure, I think the growth speaks for itself. When we took over that facility, which had been a municipally operated facility for nearly 40 years and invested about $18 million over the course of a few years into capital improvements and the creation of the first of seven of what will eventually be 14 acres of the property. We went from visitation around 60,000 to 140,000 a year. And the budget grew when the first year I was hired, essentially as a startup nonprofit, the budget was 400,000. When I left the year, most recent budget year prior to the pandemic, we were a $3.3 million operating organization. I think those numbers speak for themselves. I think we created a living example for what public gardens of the future can look like. Now, I will also say it was a hell of a lot of work to convince people sometimes that the way to create a forward-looking public horticulture was not to always be so focused in the short term on how many events we had or how many, I mean, the, you know, these sorts of metrics that, that nonprofits have that get sort of caught up in because they have to, it, it's, it's the, it's the unfortunate reality of some of these things. Uh, I think blur the longer term vision. And I, I am concerned about the institution that I left and many other institutions about how far ahead their vision is. And it's, it's hard. It's, if anybody out there is listening to public horticulture, you can find my email on my website, kellydenoris.com. You can drop me a line and we can commiserate until the sun goes down because it's hard. It's tough work. And, and there is, there, you're totally right, Steve. There's more, there's, uh, we could in public horticulture do a far better job of, of pushing these values. And sometimes it's a leap of faith. And sometimes it's against the incentives and the investments in place by the supporters of those organizations to help push them in a different direction. My, my colleague, Brian Vogt, who's the CEO at Denver Botanic Garden, has a great turn of phrase when he has to engage with board members or trustees that maybe are a little resistant to things they do. And he told me this some years ago. He said, you know, it's not for you. And <laughs> it's, it, it takes a really masterful leader to look one of his funders in the eye and go, you know, I hear you. I know you don't like this. I know you don't think this is the right thing, but it's not for you. 
<laughs> and I, I always, am, am I, am I jelly of some of the things that happened over in the UK? Yeah. I'm occasionally jelly of things that happen over in the UK kids. We all know this, but one of the, to me, Kelly, the glaring differences when we talk about the two gardening cultures between the UK and the United States to, to oversimplify it for a second is mm-hmm. there are gardens there that are both iconic um, yeah. almost reverential and right. the country's scale being so much smaller than here in the U S that so many people, they influence, they, they yeah. literally yeah. influence them. And right. here outside of a few isolated pockets, we don't have those same yeah. things. You don't go to yeah. a garden, even if it's, it's labeled as a botanical garden necessarily and see the same kind of planting. Yeah. You don't see it with the same thoughtfulness. I mean, no offense to Stella Dioro Daylily, but if I drive into your botanical garden and there's 4,000 of them planted in mass, I'm probably going right. to get a little sick and turn around. And that's unfortunately, yep. though, for many people, what yep. that trip is. And I'm, I, think, I think that's why we were so different for the majority of the last decade is because our plantings were things people had never experienced before. And whether they knew all the names, whether they related to all the details, it didn't and it doesn't matter because it changed, it, it affected them in an emotionally and romantic different way. And this is the future. This is how public horticulture becomes critical infrastructure. Not because it, it should be, it has to be critical infrastructure in an increasingly urbanized world. And in order for us to convey that value to policymakers and at a municipal civic level, we have to look and operate and sound and feel different. And that means sometimes creating resistance. Uh, I, I certainly encountered a lot of resistance over the years in working with donors who often because of their socioeconomic privilege, because of the, the whiteness of their skin, saw the world in a very different way and saw horticulture as being a very as having a very different place in in our city. And we pushed up against a lot of those boundaries. And, and I, I think in the end, we pushed the, the average in a, in a positive direction. You mentioned the, the differences in culture, the, 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 the culture, the contrast in the cultures of horticulture between Northern Europe and the US. I mean, part of that is, you know, those aren't apples to apples, right? I mean, it's an older civilization. A lot of public horticulture in Northern Europe did not evolve in the same way virtually at all that it has in America because those organiza- a lot of those organizations are historical entities. They're, they're pr- for former private estates that were given in the public trust or developed as true scientific cultural institutions, you know, the Royal Botanic Garden System, et cetera, the World Horticultural Society, these systems of patronage that essentially underwrote these curious exploratory endeavors into the world of botany and horticulture. And in America, there was, there certainly was a seminal origin in that philosophy, and, and institutions like Missouri Botanic Garden and the New York Botanical Garden, uh, our, our Chicago Botanic Garden, are great examples of sort of legacy institutions that still today have a pretty solid, firm pillar in that kind of scientific, academic, pseudo-academic, or you know, sub-academic kind of discipline in 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 bot- botanical sciences and ecology and whatnot. So much of uh, the majority of public horticulture in this country has has really kind of grown out of almost a park-like mindset, uh, which I don't think is bad. I think actually it shows us the future in ways that that 
are, are quite opportunistic. And I, I'll give a shout out to Myriad Botanical Garden in Oklahoma City. It's a, an institution that's doing some really interesting work blurring the boundaries between what we might call public horticulture and what we might have called you know, municipal parks management. And they're, they're sort of infusing a lot of green space and activating and influencing a lot of green space in their city with a kind of higher mind of horticulture. And I think it's a great example. They're, they're, they're doing some you know, work that I think we'll start to see the results of, or they will in the, in the coming years. I, I think there are a number of examples out there like that, where we can see in short order the power that horticulture has on everything from economics to property values to perceptions of safety, all these sorts of things. I, I think there's a huge future ahead, but I, we definitely need more people realizing the, the, the prospects uh, for sure. How much do you, and I'm, I'm going to, we're really, I'm pulling back the curtain here on something uh, for everybody that I find maybe for, if you're just home gardener, if you work in the nursery industry, if you don't, if you're just somebody that stumbled onto the podcast. One of the things I find interesting, Kelly, there is, I'm going to take a very 21st century approach to my phrasing here. For some of the plants and some of the style even of gardening we're talking about and some of this approach, there is actually a tremendous deficit of content, of Mm. literal visual content, photos, Mm -hmm. video, Mm -hmm. to even convey some of these things. Has In in working on the book and over the last 10 years and even your your time at the Botanical Garden, does that ever strike you? Because it strikes me consistently. Now, maybe this is spoken from someone also, Kelly, who tries to position a lot of imagery about plants. But it's a struggle bus, my friend, sometimes, even just to find a photo that conveys some of these points. No, no, I don't, I don't think you're, I don't think that's inaccurate at all. I I think in in so many ways, it evinces the culture of horticulture that we're talking about. We've, we've come from a very artistically, aesthetically driven approach to making landscapes that has created beautiful places, no doubt, and places that have inspired, uh, I mean, we. there's plenty of that in the world. There's plenty of books, this whole bookcase behind me here, it's just plenty of, plenty of books that talk about color and theory and design and, and all that. But if we're trying to convey visually a broader approach to planting on the wild side, to plants in naturalistic, I sort of, uh, that word kind of is starting to make me cringe because it's kind of losing its meaning as more people use it, which is fine because that that shows that the, the vocabulary is evolving. But like, what does naturalistic really mean? It's like, what does sustainable really mean? And I, so what, what it, and which is why I don't use, I try, don't, I try to avoid them as much as possible because I, I think we can be more, more descriptive. But, but to that point of being more descriptive, I, yes, I think that there is still a great need for more examples in the public realm to to really showcase these plants in ways that aren't just simply arranged for their color or their geometry or their texture or whatever. It's not just simply an artistic concoction. It's it's something that's actually real and based in some ecology. And of course, there's 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 tons of great examples around the world. But yes. I think we're not necessarily seeing those in our gardening catalogs. We're not necessarily seeing that imagery at the retail level where people are interacting with the plants themselves. I will say when I worked on the book, my publisher, Cool Springs Press, was 
<laughs> they wanted more home scale images. And I was, and of course there's a lot of photos of my home garden and there's a, my friends, Dan Benarsik and Peggy Ann Montgomery's um, home garden, uh, their little gravel garden terrace where they uh, have a little table and, and it's, it's very wild and loose behind their house uh, in Wilmington, Delaware is on the front cover. Uh, you know, they were like more of those things. And I was like, where? <laughs> I mean, I, I travel a lot. I mean, I, I have a huge photographic library. I, I, I my, the, the camera is my third appendage. And even in 90 some thousand images that I've taken in the last 15 years, it was really, really hard sometimes to find examples of, particularly outside of plant headshots, because we, we can do that all day long, but, but things that showed plants in a wilder context in a home garden. In fact, the more they brought it up, the more I was like, guys, that's the point of the book. <laughs> like we, we want, we want people to do these things so that 10 years when somebody goes to reinvent this again, and, and like, there'll be plenty of examples for them to photograph because we've affected the way that people use plants. Uh, the, as much as I love Monarda Bredberniana, I can tell you, Kelly, there's not a lot of great photos of it in a garden setting. There are these moments yeah. where I, I look and I go, okay, as you said, Here's a headshot of that plant. Here's a headshot of sure. that plant. Here's a close-up of right. the flower. Here's a close-up of the foliage. But giving it context. What is it doing? Exactly. <laughs> what is it doing? Exactly. Right, right, right. The active yep, thing I, that we talked about earlier. Yeah, it's it's something that, of course, as a photographer, you know, I the first lens I ever had was a macro lens when I got when I switched over from film to digital 15, 16 years ago. And so for three years, all I did was shoot close-ups and had, uh, because I was, I, I had that macro lens, man. It was, it's, I still do it. 60 millimeter Canon macro. It was beautiful. I shot macro headshots of every plant I could come around to. And I, at some point in college, I was an editorial intern, uh, sophomore, junior year for over the summer for Better Homes and Gardens. And even though I was an editorial intern, I, I spent a lot of time that summer on photo shoots and I learned probably more about photography and, and visual storytelling that summer than I did about writing or editing or anything because I started to realize, wow, I can't literally just have my lens stuck up the petal of every single flower I come across. Like you have to tell a story. And so I became, you know, so over the last 10, well, you know, however many years it's been since that sort of epiphany, if you want to call it that, I'm really interested in capturing that sort of visual relationship that plants have to place plants have to structure plants have to each other and it's it's endlessly fascinating when you i mean i I still love macro photography don't get me wrong and i still think that as a place i'm not i'm not trying to adjudicate this i'm just saying i'm i'm, I'm underscoring your point that there's as much of a need to place these plants in a context in people's lives there's still more than ever as i as i said earlier in the interview a, a need to relate this back to style and to people's sort of perspectives on the world we have to create now we, we've spent 60 years uh creating well more than 80 years now post-world war ii and the really the, the sort of these the decades since world war ii where, where that kind of lifestyle home and garden sort of um, thing has thrived in publications better homes and gardens was started before world war ii but but arguably you know became the the mainstay as 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 it is in american culture in the in the decades since world war ii we still have to create a lifestyle around around gardening and people we're just doing it now with a little wilder aesthetic and a wilder touch and i'm really honored that my my front yard garden, my meadow is going to be in Better Homes and Gardens and the main well feature later this summer. And I think it's a really bold, provocative thing 
for them to do. I'm proud of my front yard. I love my meadow. I, and people, you know, I, I post it on Instagram all the time. It's in the book. I mean, I love it. But it certainly is a conversation piece in my neighborhood. Most I, I've never been. My neighborhood is 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 very curious. is a, is an up and coming neighborhood. It's it's got fun things happening. People buying old homes and restoring. I mean, it's it's a it's a kind of it's a fun neighborhood to be in right now because it's kind of burbling back to life. And so my my garden is kind of a topic of conversation. There's lots of walking that happens, but down the street, and I live kind of on a sort of dead end loop. So you have to kind of make a journey to come out to see it. So the increase in foot traffic over the few years that I've owned this place has been kind of fun to watch and watch people react and what the questions they ask and all this kind of stuff. But we still have to create a lifestyle conversation around ecological horticulture. And I'm that's I'm I'm passionate about the science and the details and I love talking about that stuff too. I also love just having a conversation with a gardener about how to simply get a little closer to a, a more ecological average. Let's pivot here for a second on, onto plants. Yeah. Because clearly, Kelly, we're both ridiculously passionate about this specific, specific subject. Um, Aquilegia canadensis. This strikes yeah. me as a plant. There's a lot of cultivated variety of uh, other Aquilegia on the market. Sure. I think that's a good plant that let's and i'm not going to name cultivars just in case you guys you know you work for a nursery or something like that who sells them i'm not going to go that distance with it but there are many of them that are not the strongest or most reliable perennial they don't perform that great in certain parts of the country how do do we sort of contextualize some of that for people that something like aquilegia canadensis is a bit of a different performer it's got a track record, uh, literally where it's from, that of performance, but sort of getting those two views of a plant that has been on the market forever, but most, and maybe your perception of this is different than mine, but the Aquilegia I see on the market are really not just Aquilegia canadensis. Right, right. Well, you know, a couple of things about Aquilegias, you know, they're, um, a group of relatively short-lived perennials, uh, even even Aquilegia canadensis, individual plants of Aquilegia canadensis are not that long-lived. They perpetuate in the garden by virtue of reseeding. So, and and certainly anybody who's grown them knows that that they just sort of keep 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 on with themselves. And the hybrids, you know, are generally interspecific hybrids that have been created from you know two or three or four or more species over time and selected for maybe their colors or their floriferousness or what have you. And there's a lot of them. It's also a group of plants. And the reason there's a lot of them is because it's a group of plants that's very prone to outcrossing and that they they don't um, they don't like to necessarily mate with themselves as much as they like to throw their genes out and mate with others around them, which is why if you have a couple of cultivars or even wild type Aquilegia canadensis and maybe a couple of other species that over some years in the garden, you can probably create your own hybrid strain because they will they will outcross and cross pollinate with each other and create this, you know, color wheel of diversity. So, so that's one thing to keep in mind too. Echinacea, same way, literally all the same example. Short-lived perennial, except for one species in a genus of only nine. Uh, Aquilegia is a bigger genus than that and had, has a bigger geographic distribution across the world. But same breeding system. Outcrossers principally like to, you know, throw their seed around, and and that's how they compensate. You could say. Uh, for being short-lived is that they perpetuate by just simply producing lots of seed and ensuring that there's always some member of their lineage 
around in the garden. But as you accurately note, you know, not all branches of the family tree are equal in that way. Uh, as a plant breeder, that's part of our job, right? Is to evaluate a lot of genetic diversity and find individuals that are the most fit. We, we could say that, that has a fitness has a specific meaning in genetics, but, but for the purposes of our conversation, we could, we could find the best, we can, that's in strong quotations, you know, the best individual for landscape performance or color or what, whatever, whatever value we're, we're adjudicating for, selecting for. So I think sometimes it's important for gardeners to, to know all of that information and, and wow, how do you cram all that into a plant tag that has, you know, a hundred characters or less, which is sometimes the, the, the challenge about how we, we teach people and share information about plants is that I think when you start to understand all those things I just said, suddenly then the metric about how we judge uh, Columbine and the landscape becomes maybe a little more lenient and accepting of the fact that, oh, you know, that purple one I bought, that little, that little semi-double pom-pom looking one that there's a whole series of out there, it's probably not going to be around for more than three or four years in the garden. It's gonna set seed. It's not gonna necessarily come back true to type, 100% of the seedlings at least. And that's just what that plant is. That's that, that approach to gardening evinces an understanding of plants, which is chapter one of the book, by the way. It's like, we, we gotta know them a little bit. You mentioned crime pays botany doesn't. As somebody, you know, great, great Instagram to follow and a great field botanist and somebody who spends a lot of time in wild places, studying plants in wild places. And, and as he, I think he posted this the other day, it's like, it's not just knowing their names, right? It's not just even knowing where they're from. It's knowing like, who are their friends? What, who are their associates? How do they live? How do they reproduce? How do they get on with the world? The more we can understand about plants beyond just Aquilegia canadensis, full sun to part shade, well-drained soil, the more that we can deepen that understanding, the more that we can understand where they fit in the garden picture. And there's probably a whole book I need to write about that, about like the real talk about plants, not just like full sun, well-drained soil and all those sorts of things, but the short livid produces lots of seed. Don't expect it to hang around. Don't cry over your post hosties about it. Like, it's okay. Like that's, that's just what it is. You're, you're uh, Roy Diblick, uh, Pete Aldoff, yeah. have talked about this a lot, especially since the the Lurry Garden success. That we're we're so focused on flower that we're talking yeah, about right. so very little else, and it's all the else that mm -hmm. really makes the plant. What is it doing? How's it interacting with its friends and neighbors? How fast is it coming up out of the ground? Is it a slow to right. wake up plant or a late to wake up plant? There's yep. so much more story to tell. And then when we talk about the evolutional, the evolution of plants and their ecology of that, now we add even another layer to right. the plant right. story. And I think that tapestry, my take on this, and you guys have heard this who listen to the podcast a lot. I believe we dumbed down too much. And what we did mm -hmm. by dumbing down and, and the drive of commerce, which I understand, but don't necessarily always agree with, we stripped down the magic of plants. We took out a lot of the things that make them wondrous because we didn't want people to wonder. We wanted to just be like, yeah, <laughs> this is what you do. Uh, and by doing so, all of these things that Kelly and I are talking about with plants, 
we weren't talking to you about. <laughs> we were just, as Kelly said, putting sun, shade, bop, bop, 18 to 24 inches, place it out 24 to 30 to its neighbor. It just, it wasn't that much to get excited about. I mean, who's, who's, who's buying that? I mean, nobody. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, let, let's, let's, let's do, let's continue this theme, but also want to hit on a couple of plants here. I shared a picture the other day of something like GM Triforum. Um, uh-huh. I, I shared Angelica atropurpureum recently, uh, also yeah. these plants that we have not seen in, mm-hmm. in a traditional garden setting. Yeah. What do you see the role of those type plants? And, and obviously there's, there's literally hundreds of others. Um, what, what do you see that role moving forward? Well, I think it's just simply increasing the diversity of plants that we garden with. And I think the the garden of the future, the ecologically resilient, vibrant garden that I'm espousing and, and that others are talking about and that we're we're highlighting here, is a just a bigger tent. It's you know, in the gardens that I create and that I advocate for, you know, in my front yard meadow, for example, has in thirty five hundred square feet, hundred and fifty different kinds of plants. It's an almost an unfathomable number to the average gardener to even consider, uh, unless you sort of start to dial your thinking in a little bit differently to the way this this happens. And so, you know, you two two favorite plants there, and Angelica and Chaparra, beautiful, umbels, structural plant, flowers in June, and purple stems. You know, sometimes purple tinged seed heads as well. There's other Angelicas, of course, that are more common in horticulture, like Angelica gigas and Angelica archangelica, which, you know, are, are not native to the U.S. Angelica atropurpurea is, uh, and uh, GM triflorum, a great matrix plant, actually, very common in meadows, in a very common understory component of meadows and short grasslands in the western great plains it's it's an intercalator essentially these little short rhizomes and crowns kind of find their way between other plants the tidy little ferny like foliage at the ground and then they flower very early and of course it's their seed heads that we sort of love them for and how they get their common name but if we start seeing those plants as kind of these active organisms, alive and dynamic, and they're sort of all contributing to this ecosystem that we're creating, it opens up, it starts to illuminate all of the niches, the roles that we have in this factory of sorts that we have to sort of staff up for, right? We've got to hire a lot of people to fill all these, or hire a lot of plants to fill all these niches. And, and we start to see the garden as this living entity. And I just think that underscores the reality that in the future, our gardens are going to have to be more diverse because they're these little vegetational patches that are stitching together the world. And so I, I think it becomes a more inclusive world for plants because we end up with, with just more diversity by virtue of the fact that we have more niches that we start to realize in our gardens and need to fill. Grasses. Yeah. Both of us, I, I would guess... In the last, I mean, this has been a, it's one of these uh, phrases people use about their career, right? It's an overnight sensation, 60 years in the making kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like that's sort of where grasses were, mm-hmm. um, that you had very small pockets of people working on them over the long period of time. And now it really feels like in this last 10, 15 year window, 
that we're really seeing an awareness that grass is we had Shannon Curry from Hoffman Nursery on last season. Oh, great. That grass isn't just turf that we have this, right. this entire palette. And I have to imagine considering where you grew up in how influential have grasses been in, in your viewpoint of the natural world, ecology and gardening. Huge, uh, hugely influential. I write in plants with style that, Grasses reign and trees abide. If you look at ecosystems around the planet and the sheer volume of biomass that grasses occupy, they run the world. They're, they're one of those principal families. Look at, look at grains. I mean, I mean they're, they're both economically important to humans, but they're ecologically important to the planet. And so, you know, it's not just a choice to me. It's, it's a about whether or not to have them it's not a or b black or white it's simply how do we how do we engage with that giant family and grass like plants sedges and rushes and what have you in an, in a contextually appropriate way that makes sure that they become a vibrant part of the biomass and the vegetation that we're creating in our gardens. And of course, as plants people, we've got just a pantheon of choices. It's the biggest closet to choose from, you know, in terms of what to bring into the garden. There's all kinds of choices and options and textures and colors and habitats and, and all sorts of things to choose from. It's a, it's a massive, massive group. And so, uh, as we've illustrated, because they're all over the world. And so, uh, you know, hugely influential to me in in both my my day to day practice in making plantings and and generating planting palettes, but also just in terms of helping to create an awareness about a family that is so principal and foundational to the to the world as we know it. When you look at the market anything that strikes you interesting that just top of your head is just like I'm happy to see this or something with cultivar or species? I'm a big fan. Well, so I have to, in full disclosure, I, I am a grass breeder. And so I, I have, I'm fascinated in my own work, of course, which is which is working with genera that aren't necessarily broadly available in the marketplace, but uh, none of that commercially available as of yet, but but Why do you have to tease me? Everyone I know, know I know. It's just, that it's... I buy every single plant. <laughs> when, I started the, when I started doing the online sales uh, last year, I, I sort of tiptoed into it. We did well. And now I think we're at uh, 155 plants being offered. So we, yeah. went, <laughs> we went from zero to 155. And I, I think that's, that's what is also exciting to me about grasses is that we yeah. have people like yourself working on them. We're, we're, for a long time, it was just, like I said, a very small group of people that were really yeah. of that lean. Yeah, and I, I will give a, we've already given a shout out to Brent Horvath, but we'll give him another one because Brent is really doing some great breeding and selection work in grasses. His big blue stems, the Andropogons, uh, Dancing Winds, Blackhawks, Red October, New One Holy Smoke out this year are fantastic examples of an otherwise broadly distributed native grass here in North America that was, again, one, probably at one point, one of the most common plants on the planet at some point in the last 10,000 years, uh, when prior to you know human incursion into the landscape, uh, well, I should say white European incursion into the landscape, but uh, a plant that needs to be used in gardens uh, 
more, just simply put. Uh, those selections that he has made that I mentioned tend to have really strong summer colors that then continue to just get better and better as they transition into autumn. So I'm a big fan of those. I think there are some great smaller grasses and sedges for, you know, for smaller gardens, which a lot of folks out there don't have acres. They don't have a half an acre. They have a quarter acre or less in most cases. They measure their garden in thousands of square feet or hundreds of square feet and not, not anything larger. And so we have to think about the scale of that. So a lot of nice work in little blue stems, the schizocuriums, a lot of nice selections, standing ovation from North Creek Nursery, perhaps one of the leading market favorites right now because it's frankly just so darn adaptable in so many places. But again, broadly distributed grass, lots of variation across its range in, in North America. I was just in Colorado last week and I made a selection on the way home, actually, a roadside selection of something that was super, super red, tight, compact, beautiful architecture, little blue stem, not seen anything quite like it before. And so, you know, it's just another example of just the the variation, the possibility that's out there for for generating planting pallets for wherever you are. I'm sure there are people from all over the place listening to this this podcast. And and you know, in North America at least, little blue stem is found in, in a pretty good chunk of the lower 48. So it's a grass that's it's kind of everywhere in a lot of respects. Uh, sedges, a lot of work in sedges these days. I, I think as people. I'm 33 and I, I know a lot of people my age, you know, they buy a house, they think, I don't want to mow this lawn every week. You know, what can I do to create something that's a little less, just reduce my inputs, you know, no, no emissions or whatever. People are thinking about those kinds of things. Turf replacements, not, you know, changing out the non-native, you know, fescues and bluegrass situation into something more like sedges or, you know, other forms of uh, turf, turfing species that are native. So uh, of course, sedges are, have a whole lot of other uses besides that, but uh, and I'm so glad you've you've had Shannon on from from Hoffman. Hoffman's doing a lot of great work to bring more diversity in sedges and grasses into the marketplace, and uh, and a, a great great nursery, great company. One of the things that I'm very happy with is I want to get your take on this too. There, I, I think we're at the best time in many ways for this to happen. I think if some of the style and conversation that we're having would have happened even just 20 years ago. I don't know if the industry would have been able to actually support some of what we're talking about. The plant choices were so much different. We didn't have yeah. the breeding work that has gone over on right. during this last 20 years to actually get these plants to market and be able to offer them to people. Yep. Because that yep. is... Obviously, Kelly, a real issue that if it's great if we talk about this plant and then people turn around and they go, where am I going to get it? <laughs> you know, on Depot and Loess, Brandon, who works there, I asked him about these things that Kelly and Steve were talking about. And he said that's not his department, that we are yep. at a place where I think if if everybody gets on this path as a, a voice or at least at least 62 percent of us, Kelly, random numbers. <laughs> that we can have success. We can tell people, hey, yeah. look, as you mentioned online, plug right there, um, that people can find these plants. And I don't know if it would yeah. have happened just even a couple of decades ago. No, I don't think it would have either. There are more plants available in the marketplace today than there perhaps has ever been in Western horticulture, at least in, the, in modern terms. And and some of these things, like I said, very in the very, very beginning are, are a 
back to the future kind of situation. We, I, I am so surprised and, I, and I'm a history geek. And so I love to, and I collect old books, old gardening books. And so I love to go back and just, you know, read the literature. In fact, there's, there's a really, really great book. Uh, it's back, it, you can get it and it's in print. It's called, uh, written nonetheless by, by two fairly influential uh, uh, women in the early part of the 20th century, uh, you know, American Plants for American Gardens. And it's been republished from University of Georgia Press and they, uh, by uh, Edith Roberts and Elsa Riemann, who were landscape architects, uh, all the more notable because they were women practicing landscape, uh, landscape architects in a time when it was very, very rare for women to be able to even receive training to go to school to do these things. And so, so hugely influential uh, and consequential leaders in a book that was actually quite important in its time. And I can't remember exactly when it was published, but I, I, I had found this copy. Oh, 1929 was its original copyright date too. It's amazing to read it and to think about the palettes that these women were advocating for 1929. And it, it speaks so strongly to the conversation we're having today. And it sort of is like the things we lose even in a technologically advanced era and have to sort of rediscover about our own our own humanity, you know, nearly a hundred years later. I mean, they're writing about, I, I, first page I just turned to here, they're writing about bog gardens and they're, 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 they're listing these associations of plants, trees and shrubs, uh, herbaceous perennials and ferns that are appropriate to these kinds of conditions. It's just it's a brilliant, brilliant book. It needs to, in some ways, be reinterpreted and expanded, and, and which is admittedly a, a project. I, it may be my, one of my next ones, is to start to illuminate the diversity of all of these beautiful wild precedents that we have in our world and, and sort of accessorize them for gardeners in, 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 with two motivations. One, to get people excited about plants in wild communities as a precedent for their own garden. But two, to start to cajole our nurseries and our industries into, into offering them so people can get it. We've got to connect the dots. Like you say, it does no good for us to sit here and, you know, as two talking heads and yammer on about these things. And then we send all these excited people out into the nursery world to be disappointed, you know, for the next year because they can't find this stuff. And I think there is under, uh, a groundswell, a shift happening beneath us at this very moment because of this conversation, these kinds of conversations we're having about, about what a garden is and how we keep it. Well, and again, to let everybody in on this, even something like GM Triforum is something that has not historically been in production in commercial nursery settings. Right. And there's only a few sources for the plant. Um, Angelica Atropropurium, even less. Uh, because again, it's, it's a plant that not a lot of people want to take on as do, a nursery. Do you have grower. it for 20? We will have, have it, it for it? this year. Yeah. I was able gonna, to source I'm gonna, it. I'm going to order some more because, uh, it is hard to source. And I actually, actually it's, it's not the easiest thing to, uh, raise from seed. It's, you know, Angelica's are, as you know, have these sort of weird cyclical germination habits. And so I have it in my, in my prairie West of my house, which is, is a garden. It's not a prairie in, in, in Literally, it's a prairie in name and spirit, as I say. But uh, I, I need more of it. But it is difficult to source, so I, I'll, I'll have to pick some up. I'm no. glad to hear you're carrying it. And it's, it's a very interesting moment. I really think it is. Let me, as we wrap up here, I want to hit you with something, Kelly, that I heard you say, and it's a common theme 
that I often feel is under talked about. I don't know if it's the the background of the industry. It's a little bit more prevalent in Europe, maybe a little less prevalent here. Some of that's just cultural differences, but is the creativity. You had a quote where you said you have an artist's heart and a scientist's brain. A scientist's head. <laughs> and I, I feel like creativity sometimes, Kelly, is, is an undersold element of gardening and all of this. Yeah. It's, you yeah. know, we live again, 21st century. We have so many people that are looking for ways of expression, ways to be creative, find that pursuit. Um, I've used myself as an example. I can't draw for anything, Kelly. I mean, I, I, I make doodles. I'm, I mean, look at my handwriting. I mean, this is horrible. This is the worst I'd, I'd get to see at best. <laughs> and yet for me, gardening has been a massive expression of creativity. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know why we haven't leaned into it a little bit more yeah. that this can be such a creative pursuit and maybe a little less rigid than we've sold it for the last 50 years. I think that's a, a brilliant insight and one I think about, well, I, I live it. I mean, it is my practice. It is my, it is my art. It is my science. It is my creative pursuit in life. I am a creative being uh, that exists on this spectrum between, you know, an artist in heart and a scientist in my head. And, and, and it is, it's my mode. I, I, yes, I'm a photographer. Yes, I practice other visual arts, but those are all secondary to my creative practice as a gardener and as a horticulturist. And I, I, I just, my wish, if I had, if I could be given one wish for the world is simply that more people would find that same stimulation. I mean, it's not just about pleasure and satisfaction. It's about stimulation and about engagement with the world. And in a way that you've obviously found in your life and that I've found in many of our friends and colleagues in the business, and most of the people probably listening engage with it some way. But yeah, it's interesting. You know, when I hired horticulturists, you know, I've been a hiring manager for over a decade, it was something I could always detect very early on. And I, this is no criticism. I'm, I'm a fierce defender of the land grant mission. I'm still active as an alumni or alumnus at uh, Iowa State University in my alma mater and, and engaged in, in external advisory capacities for the Department of Horticulture. I, I, I place formal education at a, at a premium value. And I, I think in our, in our country, if I may say, I, I hope we can create a system in where more people are, are given access to, to learn and have those experiences because it's so, so important. Uh, for for people to have access to those experiences. But I will say, as a product of the land-grant mission, you know, the creative being that I have inside of me is something that, you know, it's, it's mine alone. I think we could do a better job of stimulating that in formal educational training, particularly in horticulture. Uh, certainly, horticulture is a big tent from cannabis and hemp food, landscape, to turf. To, I mean, there's just a lot of things that come under that, that umbrella of career tracks and, and aspects of the profession that people are trained in. I would love to see more creative encouragement and stimulation. I, I, I can pick out the two in 10 applications. I can winnow out quickly the two that are going to be the most creative by virtue of how, how they express themselves, how they talk about their work. How, and, and those were always the people in public horticulture that I wanted to hire more of. It was no, no criticism necessarily of the other eight out of the 10. 
but it was that 20% that, that sort of got that their work was more than just knowing full sun, well-drained soil, cut it back in June, dig it up every three years. It was like more than the mechanics. It was, there's something here that we can, we can relate to people, especially in a public setting. We can tell a story. We can connect these plants and these landscapes to people's lives. And we can underscore the value, not just the amenity, the, the necessary value of horticulture is an essential part of our lives, wherever we live. And I, I, I agree with you. I, I'm always, whatever we can do to encourage more creativity in the horticultural arts and sciences at home, at work, whether you're doing this avocationally or, or as a, you know, just as a home gardener, uh, I, I hope that we, we see more of that in our, in our future of our world because we need it. So the book was the last an ongoing project where do you go next well what's 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 your personal next goal do you, probably many for, as a creative person every creative person yeah. has 77 projects going on in different isn't, parts of the brain the simultaneously but what is your, oh your goal as we move forward here and hopefully at some point people the the pandemic eases we get back to some degree of normalcy what do you, what do you see as your next step I'm on a mission to plant the world a more beautiful ecological place. And I am lucky that I get to affect a lot of different things in route to that cause, uh, both in media and in print. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a restive writer in the sense that I, I am always writing a book, whether I'm actually writing it or whether it's festering in my head, I, I can't help myself. The words are a part of my creative output as well too. So I, I'm, you know, I'm fiddling around with what that next project is and how to how to continue framing the conversation in ways that people can get on board with. My day-to-day -day life is as a planting designer, and I, I'm blessed to have a, a full studio. Of, I hope this is only on the audio stream, because if the video stream, people are going to see this very messy desk that I'm sitting at, you know, covered in projects for both public and private clients. I love working in public settings. I love working for municipal entities and public gardens. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm available to consult and work in that realm because I, I think the more that we can put, just like we were talking about earlier, the more examples we can create and put in the world for people to live in, to see, to experience the, the, the faster we get on the way to this, this urgent conversation about, uh, about planting our world and, and, and planting it in a more beautiful ecological place. And so uh, you know, I, I, as you say, I, you, you called me out 77 things and good grief. I, I, you know, some days it's, it's overwhelming because I'm, I'm interested in a lot of things. My, my mind and my attention is, is, is easily directed at, at any one of those on any given day. Uh, but uh, I, I'm, for now I, I'm, I'm full plate of design projects and uh, excited to be promoting new naturalism and, and, and have really, uh, uh, enjoyed the reaction uh, so far. It's uh, it's just out. It's obviously been a little delayed and with uh, COVID on some of the warehouse things. But uh, uh, here mid February, it's uh, official launch and people are are getting their copies, starting to get their copies uh, from wherever they've been ordered. And you can order on my website kellydenoris.com. And uh, hopefully we can we get more people on board with this ecological cause we've had a nice conversation about today.
lost ties of these old abandoned rails Wondering about the stories they could tell I think of all the weight I carry on my own And I try to empathize with all they bear There's something about the sun that brings me back to life It's just like staring in your eyes And I can't tell you what it is I'm doing here All I know is nothing's felt so right So let me stay Feeling this way I never want to leave this state of It's for you to decide